This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 410, A Conversation with Phil Jimenez. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 410. It's our conversation with Phil Jimenez. Uh, this is a really fun interview I got to have with Phil talking about Superwoman and his career in comics. Uh, it was a great deal of fun that we had, uh, so I'm really excited for everyone to get a chance to listen to this. Uh, we recorded it the week of, or actually, I guess, two days before the release of Super Superwoman number two, so it's already come out, so uh, people probably know what happens in that issue now, although as I record this up, uh, this intro, I haven't read it yet, uh, but uh, we talked kind of vaguely about it, because obviously it hadn't come out at the time, I hadn't read it and didn't want to spoil it for me. Um, I do want to thank some people from the Marvel Masterworks Forum uh, for suggesting some questions. Uh, so Shagma, we used yours. Uh, let's see. Uh, Froggy, we used elements of your question. Uh, we mentioned something that Dynamite 1977 had posted about. Um, so we definitely included that. Um, anyways, I think that was the main kind of question aspects that we were able to integrate into the episode. As I said, I, it was a lot of fun to talk to him about his career. Um, really good insights. It was just, it's really, really interesting to find out certain things about certain books that he's worked on in the past and um, him as a writer and how he views himself as a writer and some of the, um, uh, not necessarily butting heads, but some of the fights, not not even fights, that's the wrong word, but some of the interactions he's had with Marvel and DC and when he when it came to stuff that he really enjoyed or stuff he was working on. and uh, It was kind of a, a really interesting kind of look behind the scenes of what it can be like to work for the big two sometimes. Uh, so I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. You can email me at comicshenanigans at uh, gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and you can also listen to us on Stitcher. So without further ado, let's jump right on into the conversation with Phil. Phil, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you doing this evening? Uh, I'm doing well. You'll pardon me. I'm working as we speak, so if you hear a pencil sharpener in the back, it's just me sharpening my uh, four H's. That's okay, because it means you're hard at work, and we, uh, we're all excited to see more issues of Superwoman, so we're okay with that. I, uh, I hope so. I hope so. It's been, it's been a very interesting journey, and... Um, I'm finding that each issue has an almost different tenor, and uh, so two is very different from one, and three is very different from two, and then four is kind of different from it all, so um, I'm hoping that uh, people will stick around for a very strange ride. When you started kind of breaking it down, did you know you kind of wanted to do these different tenors, or did it just kind of organically happen as you were plotting it? Um, uh, Both. So I... It's actually been a, a really interesting journey, um, and it has been, how do I even say this? Um, it's been a really interesting journey, and part of that has been about figuring out what this book is about, and who, and what its themes are, and how to tell those stories. And it was interesting because we had this very explosive issue number one, and number two is a uh, what I want to say, it almost sets up all the stuff that number one did not, um, or I couldn't get to. So there's a lot of supporting cast, and there's a lot of, uh, I want to say, more quiet moments. Um, there's still some action, um, and the action seems a little almost innocuous. Like, oh, great, this villain's back, and he's not, he's just doing, you know, he's exploding things. But then you find that there's some deeper meaning to it. Um, and then there's a, I mean, but that villain's almost a MacGuffin for the big villain. There's a surprise, blah, blah, blah. So 
So what we did try to keep in this book is the element of surprise. That there are always there's always a moment at the end or somewhere that, that that's sort of unexpected, which I feel like is just what serialized fiction should be good at um, and should do, sort of keep people entertained. Um, but what kind of surprises those are changes from issue to issue. Now, you mentioned that it's kind of been a, an interesting or longer journey to kind of get the, the book out and how it's been developed. How did the book first kind of get pitched? Like, it's an interesting, the name is, you know, people know kind of Superwoman, but there hasn't usually been a consistent Superwoman. Uh, how did you kind of, like, did the book kind of find you? Did you find the book? And then how did the cast of characters? <laughs> the, book, the book found me. Um, the Basically, what had happened was I was at DC Comics and... Now, let's see. How did this work? Uh, you know, forgive me. So, backing up even further, about a year ago, almost, um, I had been talking to Dan DeVille about coming back to DC Comics for the project. And uh, about two or three weeks later, the, I think it came up that I would be drawing Superman, and Brian Hitch was going to write it. And I was actually really excited about this because I really liked Superman, and I had not actually ever drawn that book. Um, I'd, I'd only drawn the character in crossovers and as guest appearances, and so I thought it would be a really wonderful opportunity. And then DC decided that they were going to push their books bi-weekly, and Brian backed out and then said it odd, but I told the Superman office I was still really interested in working on a super project. And then a few weeks after that, um, and mind you, this was over the course of a couple months, DC presented me Superwoman, and they asked me if I wanted to write and draw, which sort of surprised me because I have a real mixed track record of writing. Um, some stuff I think is actually really strong, other stuff not so strong, but it's a very idiosyncratic point of view, and they were putting me on their mainstream, you know, a big mainstream book. But I took the job, and then, um, gosh, back in December, I think it was, maybe early January, we sat with the editors and Jeff Johns, and we beat out uh, the main plot, the main story beats for the first several issues, uh, and then I was able to contribute some ideas, and uh, and there we have it. And then suddenly I was doing this book. Um, the trick, of course, is that we spun out of the death of Superman, and so our book was sort of intimately tied to that, that event and the history of that event. Um, and so that's actually been a, a very interesting challenge in that my two lead characters uh, came from the death of Superman event and were uh, affected by and empowered by um, the thing that killed off Superman. No, I have a question. When they first kind of uh, pitched, you know, Superwoman to you, and before you kind of did the plotting sessions, it's, uh, and so was it always going to be Lois and Lana, or was it kind of up in there, or did they just have it's going to be Superwoman? We don't know who that is yet. Um, they had very clear ideas of who they wanted Superwoman to be, as did I. It was my idea to make the team, um, and uh, because I was really, really interested in the idea of women working together and characters working together. And my hope is that throughout the book, at least the first, gosh, couple of arcs, people notice there's a theme um, running through, which is that people, human beings might not like each other, but that doesn't mean they have to be cruel to each other. And I was really interested in taking two characters who were historically unfriendly and making them partners with the understanding that we might not like each other, but we're better together than we are apart. 
And so they liked this and they let me run with it. So while they had originally wanted um, one superwoman, uh, I, I was able to convince them to get, give me two. <laughs> that's, a, that's kind of a, a big move. I mean, I'm reading the first issue. I didn't really see that coming at all, and that was a really exciting moment when suddenly Lana transforms. So it's interesting, you kind of had two surprise big moments in that issue. I did, and I had to, I had to fight for that. I'm glad that I did. I thought it was worth it. Um, and I, I thought the impact would be worth it, and I liked the build-up to it. I also liked the fact that I got to play with Lois Lane, who was far more eager than Lana Lang, to to become Superwoman, that Lois in many ways knew what Lana was capable of, but Lana sort of mired in her depression over her friend's death, was resistant, uh, and Lois convinced her, and because she she knew what she knew that Lana would be a good Superwoman, she knew they would be a good team, mostly because they're, they're they are united by their love and affection for. Superman himself, and that, um, yeah, so, so I, I fought for that, I fought for this teaming, and I was really, really excited to be able to play the two of them together. Which of the two women did you find was a more natural fit for your, you know, your authorial voice, and which one did you think you had to tap, work at tapping into their point of view more? Uh, that's a great question. I've been fielding a lot of um, uh, criticism on Twitter about this because you like people have been saying or interpreting a previous interview that the reason I wanted Lana as Superwoman is because she was easier for me to write. Um, I think on some level, Lana is actually more difficult for me to write because the New 52 version of Lana Lang is a scientist. Actually, both of these women I find really difficult because I think they're so incredibly smart. I think they're both smarter than I am. <laughs> uh, while I was writing the New 52 Lois, what I found was that she was funnier than I expected. And in terms of the coupling, where the characters were, she had the sense of humor, a bit of levity, and she had, and she had the ability to see beyond the immediate. Um, that was something I wanted to play with Lois. With Lana, it was actually took some finding and some getting into, and then when I really started to do my research uh, and check out her backstory, I found that what that was um, and what I wanted to explore with her. And once I figured that out, um, uh, she became she became pretty easy. That said, there are many versions of these characters. Um, my take on Lana is very much, I would say, rooted in the Greg Pak take. It's definitely the New 52 version, who is this kind of energized, go-getter, doesn't stop, doesn't look back, um, you know, blow the shit out of him, Clark. Like, I remember <laughs> there was some line in some special, which I was like, oh my God, that's so funny, where Lois is trying to, I think it's called, it's Super Doom, and Lois is trying to communicate with Superman and tell him how to do you know, how to manage his power, and it's a very tempered, measured uh, approach to his superheroics, and Lon is exactly the opposite. And it really was in that combination that I found the voices for these characters. Also, when I started playing with the idea that Lana Lang was having some panic attacks based, rooted in this 
her, her recent losses, the death of her parents, the death of her brother, the death of her best friend, and now the seeming death of her partner, um, that became something I was interested in. Uh, and that, then suddenly I was able to find Lana's voice once I, I, once I realized that that was going to be her issue. What's interesting is that, that, I mean, obviously I'm only going off the first issue so far, but you have a lot going on and these characters dealing with grief, and yet the book feels very optimistic. The book feels very lighthearted, even though there's these deeper themes. How do you maintain that balance and keep that kind of enthusiasm? Well, so it's very funny that you say that because the book vacillates, I think, between high and low. So in issue two, which again, the tenor of it's very different. Um, it's introducing a lot of the supporting cast, but what I did was um, try to use characters that would, that all had good spirit, and that would lend a bit of levity to a heavy situation. We have Lana, a superwoman, thinking her partner was, you know, just disintegrated, and then we have a crazy, bizarre woman who's after them, and, and what does this all mean? And what I wanted to make sure of as we introduce supporting characters, well, we're going to see Maggie Sawyer, we're going to see Steele and Natasha Irons um, and others, is that they kept the spirit high. And if Lana ever got too dour that you had characters around her to remind her of, of that levity of what it means to be Superman, of the hope and compassion and kindness that a super family member must have. What's also nice is that we have Lex Luthor, um, and he becomes a part of this whole thing, and his Superman is a constant reminder to Lana of how not to be a super person. So she, she, she defies him and thinks that she's not going to be that person and yet sometimes she finds herself acting a bit like him and then becomes really horrified by that but then of course is reminded by Steele and Natasha uh, what it truly means to be to, to wear that S shield um, and so what it, what it is is the first three issues really take place over one night and uh, by the third issue, it's really hitting Lana what has happened in the first. But I think the arc after that suddenly opens up this whole story in a really unexpected way. And I think any fears of a book that's too modeling or too serious will, be, will, will sort of vanish and will return to a book that is full of, I think, optimism and humor and a great spirit and something that's really unusual and I don't think has happened in a Superman book yet. A question I wanted to ask is that when you, you mentioned Steele, um, when you were doing your research, what was it like figuring out how to write the New 52 version of Steele, who although has similarities to the pre-New 52 version, is definitely his own new character? Um, it's funny that you say, so I read some Steele. Uh, I certainly know his origin. And um, what I am doing, quite frankly, sort of probably melding the two versions of the character. So I'm using the 52 version of Steel and his, and his origin. Um, but what I've done is bring back a couple of family members, a little bit of history, um, nothing that wouldn't make sense with the new 52 version, but something that will connect with older readers without alienating any new ones. I found that the characters melded pretty well. What I've been trying to do, though, is give Steel a point of view 
um, that remains unique in the Superman universe. Um, and part of that has a lot to do with his business. Um, he's no longer interested in making uh, armor or weapons for the military. He's become private. He's really interested in reinvesting in neighborhoods and communities. All of his technology is about helping that rather than, say, adding to like the military-industrial complex. It's all about restoring neighborhoods that need help and don't have the resources to do so. So whatever this version of Steel becomes, I think he has enough elements of the new 52 version and just uh, enough of the spirit of the old one. My hope is that he will make people happy. With regards to and writing... people will, will recognize him. Okay. With regards to writing Lex Luthor, I mean, obviously this is a very unique and different version of Luthor, and you've written him here and there in the past when he was in a very different place. How did you approach the character, and how much fun is he to write now that he's kind of a hero but kind of still a dick? So um, he ended up being... His, Lex's story uh, is a huge part of Superwoman. Uh, they have a couple of interesting connections, and... There are people out to get Lex, and what Lex has come to discover is that being a super person means people constantly want to try to kill you. Um, this Lex, I've been working a lot with Dan Jurgens to make sure that these Lexes work and coincide. Again, infusing this Lex with, I want to say a bit of the spirit of the pre-52 version. Um, we're bringing back LexCorp. We're making him, you know, billionaire. So, although that was sort of, we saw that in Jeff Johns' Justice League. So we're just kind of taking that Lex, which is sort of my model for this Lex. Um, the some of the early Grant Morrison stuff, and then Jeff's take on Justice League, and then some other bits and pieces, and kind of they're all infused into this single character. Lex is incredibly fun to write. I am always nervous about writing him about hitting a beat that feels false or that doesn't resonate. My editors have kept me very focused and very uh, clear, and I hope that remains the truth. Again, because he becomes a very fun supporting cast member uh, of Superwoman in a really unique way. And because his past comes to haunt him, I will say, I keep tossing this out, Dan Jurgens came up with this amazing beat for Lex's past that works really well with my book, um, I think it's something we've never seen in a Superman book before. I thought it was sort of brilliant, and I'm really excited as well, once it sees prints. Of course, nothing is true until it sees prints. I think it will be um, a wonderful addition to the Lex Luthor mythology and shape him for years to come. They're letting me do some of that, too. I'm, I'm making some tweaks to his history, which blow my mind, um, but they seem to love them. And when I say they, I mean DC, so... I, I hope I do an okay job. You mentioned, um, like, what, what has the, the general critical reaction been from fans? I mean, uh, general, you, you've mentioned some of the, you know, some of the Twitter comments, etc., that may have been a little bit not as positive, but generally speaking, has the reaction been what you were hoping for? Um, I don't even know how to say this, <laughs> because it sounds really ungrateful. I, I hope people like the stuff that I put out, it's very hard for me to linger ever on reviews um, because the reviews were overwhelmingly positive despite there were, there were definitely some, some lowest fans who were disappointed because they didn't get the book they thought they were going to. And I understand that completely. Uh, but I kept getting all these 
these news reports and reviews and, and you know, four-star articles uh, from our PR people. And I just thought, I don't want to know any of this. I just want to keep doing this comic. Um, because, of, you know, the old adage is if the good reviews are bad. I mean, if the good reviews are true, then so are the bad ones. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm really grateful that the book was the surprise hit that it was. My hope was that at least we would launch with a bang, which I think we did. Um, I am, I am actually currently drawing issue five, um, and I know where we are. We're going to issue eight. I'm really excited about the payoff for this stuff. A lot of things that we're setting up in issues one and two. My hope is that fans will stick around, or if they left because they were pissed off that Lois, you know, seemingly died, that they'll check in from time to time just to see what's up, um, and you know where we go with that story. So. I'm very grateful for those reviews, and I'm really thrilled that so many people seem to enjoy the book. I am just trying to get other issues done and out and hope that they are as solid and that people like them as much. When Now, we've talked a lot about you writing the book, but, I mean, the art looks absolutely incredible. How much lead time did you have for the first issue and then going forward? I mean, obviously, you're already on issue five, so it sounds like you have a, a good kind of cushion starting to build up. Well, I burned through my lead time on the first and second issues for sure. Fortunately, it was always built in that we would have a rotating artist in Emmanuelle Lupacino. So she's been fantastic. And I have to say her issue four, so she does three. So it's sort of two on, two off, and then three and then two. Um, but her issue four, I am falling in love with. Um, issue three was a real, you know, we're getting to know each other. So there's a couple of rhythms that we had to figure out and... Um, uh, probably like a, a, a clash of approach, but number four, I just feel like, oh, that's it. We're in it now. So it's been really, really nice to have that support. Um, and and I, I, my editorial group has been really, really good also about just keeping us not only on schedule, but, you know, I'm working on a couple different issues at once and I'll forget something and they're like, oh, but you said this and this issue or this chronology doesn't work and I'm reminded what good editors are there for. <laughs> I have a bit of a, a naive question. Um, when you are, you know, writing a script for a book that you're illustrating, do you kind of do shorthand? Like, how, how does a script look like when yeah. you're actually drawing it? And what, about, what does it look like when you give it to another artist? So, um, on the learning curve, I mean, I tend to do beat sheets when I'm drawing for myself, and then the editors approve those sheets. Um, uh, although I've also found that sometimes those are even too, what do I want to say, minimal, um, or they can be misleading. So uh, what I've learned to do are, are, are fairly Marvel-style plots, which is also how I, I write for Manuela. I, I, although in her case, instead of just a plot, I break things down by panel. Now, I know most artists can't draw as many panels as I can on a page comfortably, uh, it's just not the way they work. And so especially with her, um, the trick has been to figure out how to insert a lot of story without literally cramping her style. She has a, she has a big, beautiful, open way of working. And we probably clashed here and there. Um, I probably tried to make her do too much. Um, and so once I figured out her way of working, once I adjusted, I think I feel like I really started giving her playing to her strengths as opposed to her forcing her to play to mine. 
Okay. Now, with the, I have to ask about the character designs. So, I mean, I'm guessing you came up with both Superwomen costumes. I did, uh, and I'm actually the, the big reveal. The big villain. Um, her appearance changes over two or three issues, and I just drew her second to last appearance, and I love it. I'm hoping other people do. I think it looks fantastic. <laughs> if I do say so myself, um, that's a little bit of bragging there. But uh, I'm, I'm very into it. So yes, and I designed them. Uh, Lois, I wanted to do a very traditional costume. And Lana, I was actually imagining with cosplayers in mind. I wanted to do a simple jacket, no cape, um, a jumpsuit. I was thinking a lot about women's workout wear. I wanted the costumes on some level to, repre to represent, you know, visually the spirits of the, the women in them. And with Lois, I thought, you know, she would, I just love the idea that she was in this black leotard, blue leotard and this big cape. And, you know, she was out there and proud to be Superwoman. And I love that Lana was like, nope, I'm wearing a coat and some, some blue lemon pants. And I'm going to put my hair in a ponytail and that's going to be my costume. And so <laughs> that was sort of my approach to everything. The uh, the fact well obviously I'm going off off the first issue but the fact that they have you know very different interpretations of Superman's powers uh, again was that something that came more from editorial originally or was that something that was more your design that that was definitely mine so when I found out that Lana would be one of my superwomen I wanted to use her skills as an engineer and her history as a teacher of Clark Kent. Um, in a new way, in a new pressure of powers. I didn't think the Superman people needed, I didn't think the Superman people needed another super strong character. There were plenty of those. But I loved the idea that Lana, having, having been there when Clark Kent first learned his powers, having taught him how to use them, and being a science person, had been thinking for years about new ways to convert that solar radiation into different kinds of power. Um, so aside from the obvious visual distinction, I wanted it to be uh, a representation of how smart she was and how she was thinking about this power for so long and, and in, a, in a new way and had really figured out how to turn those powers on their ear, as it were, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, uh, it, was also, it was also really fun because I've had a couple of scientist people help me and an engineer help me with certain moments just to make sure that they are, you know, pseudo-scientifically accurate. And that's actually been a lot of fun too. Why is making, like, why is bringing more of um, that kind of engineering sensibility important to you as a writer? Like, is it just to, to so that it feels more authentic as a character beat? Well, I, you know, I think it's really, really, really important to have a cast of, what I would say is mostly women um, who are smart, scientifically adept, who solve problems with their brains uh, as much as their powers, or who use their powers in new and creative ways. Um, I think that kind of representation is really important. I, I'm amazed at the number of super smart geniuses at DC Marvel Comics that are all men, and how few of them are women. Hmm. Uh, I wanted to turn that spirit on its head. Um, uh, I liked the idea, to me, um, you know, the Superman universe, the science fiction universe, that Batman's crime noir and Wonder Woman's sort of mythological fantasy, Superman's science fiction, 
so I wanted to hit those beats on the head best as I could, um, you know, within the limited scope and understanding that I have and the resources that I have. But I just thought was also that's that's what that corner of the universe is. It's science, super science. I'll never be Grant Morrison with my understanding of science for sure. <laughs> but um, I've been able to to talk to a couple of people about ways that Lana can convert her her energy or that radiation, um, ways that we can't, we've never even imagined. Uh, and we'll see her do things a super character has never done before. And I'm excited about that too. And it might make her the most powerful of them all. Hmm. Uh, I want to go way back for a second. Actually, before I do that, I want to ask a question that I like to ask a lot of my guests. And usually I do it right up front, but today I, I kind of forgot about it for a minute. Um, when you do convention appearances and, and the such, what do you find is, is the most common thing that you're asked to sign? Uh, infinite Crisis, for sure. I, I send more Infinite Crisis than just about anything. Um, and all age groups, I always remain awed by the number of young people who picked up Infinite Crisis as their first comic, because I think Infinite Crisis is very dense and can be very confusing. And I love that they're like, no, we loved it, it was great. And this is what got us into comics, which just, <laughs> it proves to me a couple of theories about the ways young people collect as opposed to the way old people do. Older readers, I should say. What do you, what do you mean by that? Uh, I just tend to think that older readers, like older consumers, um, have stronger opinions about things based on uh, a lot pattern and, you know, long-standing beliefs about how stories work or don't work or what a character should look like or not look like. Um, and less time, because, you know, life gets in the way, to invest in hyper-complicated storytelling depending, right? So when I was 15, I read Crisis on Infinite Earth, which to many outsiders would be confusing beyond confusing, or I was a big fan of the Gip and Lovett Legion of Superheroes from the first issue, you know, right before the Great Darkness Saga which is a story that has probably 60 characters in it uh, set in a universe I'd never experienced before, and none of it mattered to me because it was just so cool mm -hmm. that I was willing to give over to it for a few issues to, to find out more. Um, and this is pre-internet. I tend to find older readers like what they like, they want what they like, and if it's not what they like, they are less interested and less likely to give it a chance. Um, and our, I, like, I was just arguing with someone on Twitter today, arguing a strong word, but, but we're talking about multiple Earths and, you know, two versions of this character and two versions of that, and I'm thinking, I was weaned on that stuff. So two versions of a, of a, a Superman or two versions of Lois Lane, I totally get. Like, I've understood that for 40 years. But it amazes me how older readers will sometimes just brush it, oh, it's too confusing, I can't understand that anymore. And I think, well, you once did, like what, uh, and I understand that comic people, comic producers can be really inconsistent and not always the smartest with uh, their choices, but I don't, it, it, I'm surprised that they're confused given their experience or impatient. Uh, but maybe their experience is why, because they know that sometimes their patience doesn't pay off. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, anyway, I, I babble on as I'm, I'm prone to, but that's that's just generally my experience. I just find that younger people tend to be a little more open than older readers about big, crazy things. And I think part of that's just because they don't know any better. No, I think you're right. I mean, I 
I grew up reading comics in the 90s, and those are super complicated and convoluted. And I didn't think of that at all when it was happening. I was just like, this is amazing. And obviously, right. it, it held enough that I'm still reading 20 years later. I mean, that's, I mean, that's certainly how I felt. Like, there's stuff out there that I look at, and I'm like, I have no idea. Like, if I, I can never start this stuff now. I just wouldn't have the patience for it. But back then, when I had nothing else to do, and, uh, you know, a bit of disposable income on a Saturday afternoon, I could not wait to figure out who these legionnaires were in whatever limited capacity that I had. Um, and I'm not sure people are as patient anymore. I could be completely wrong and, and completely being dismissive and unfairly of, of fan consumption patterns. It's just my experience. But to, to your initial question, the thing I get that um, the thing people bring to me most at conventions is internet crisis. Going to the opposite end of the spectrum, what would you say is the, one of the rarest things that people usually bring you to, to sign? So everyone brings you the infinite crisis, but what's the diamond in the rough? The the thing that you're like, oh my god, I actually worked on this? Um, there's a lot of it. It's usually like a single page splash or a, a pinup that I did, you know, 1994. <laughs> uh, people bring me secret files pages that I forgot that I drew, um, trading cards. Uh, what I also also enjoy doing is seeing trading cards that the company's made from pre-existing art mm. that I'd never seen either because I didn't get a copy of it or I didn't open the package. Um, and so people will say like, "Oh, but you drew this trading card," and I will have no memory of it. <laughs> and oh. so that that always makes me that's that's the stuff that blows me away. Um, the stuff that I have absolutely no memory of. Now, you mentioned one of the, the first things you were kind of reading when you were younger was Crisis and Infinite Earths. What was it about comics that kind of drew you in? So the first comics I read religiously uh, were Star Wars comics, uh, Marvel Comics Star Wars in the late 70s and 80s. And what drew me into that was the, the ability to read the adventures of characters I loved, even when they weren't on the screen. Uh, but what I thought was important about it was that folks like Walt Simonson and Carmen Infantino were drawing this book. And so I think I came to understand strong visual storytelling at a fairly early age. What got me into superhero comics was a friend in high school, um, he and his sister, this, these twins named Eric and Erica Teasley, saw that I could draw, and they gave me a copy of X-Men and asked if I could copy some of the images of X-Men from... Uh, from my, what was say, was it Paul Smith, I think? I think it was the Brood Saga. Okay. And so I did, and I fell instantly in love with that, that the, the world, and the idea of the soap opera narrative, and the idea of cliffhangers, and what happens next. I, I loved that stuff. I thought it was great. And um, I became instantly addicted. And so... I started drawing comics and started turning friends of mine in high school into comic book characters, all incredibly cheap, bad copies of X-Men. But that's how I got into visual storytelling, uh, like personally, um, professionally, and that's really what kept me interested in comics. Um, the soap opera narrative, the ongoing story, the giant flamboyant characters, their extraordinary adventures, I've said many times on panels, I'm not one of those people that got into comics because I could see me, um, meaning like I, I was never the Spider-Man kid, the poor put-upon put nerd. I mean, I was, 
but that wasn't the sort of character I looked for. I looked for characters I wanted to be like. So my joke is, you know, the X-Men were all fabulous and rich and living in a big mansion in upstate New York and traveling to outer space and wearing thigh-high boots and going to Lincoln Center in New York. And I thought, wow, for an outsider, that seemed like a pretty solid deal. If that's what it means to be different, sign me up. <laughs> now, how did you end up at first kind of making your, your entries into the industry and breaking in? My secret origin is um, around, I, I worked at a comic book store called Comics Unlimited in Orange County, California. While I was there, I made more comics. By the time I was out of high school, I actually made about 50, 50 comics based on, you know, pre-existing characters but of my friends in high school. So I had a huge portfolio. I met Adam Hughes and Jim Lee at store signings in the comic store where I worked. And somehow it deduced that the people that could give you work in comics were editors. Somehow I figured out that you could make a living doing this. I think it was because I met artists who did so at these comic book store signings. And when they gave me guidance, they said, seek out an editor. I sought out the editor who edited all the things that I loved, which were Sandman and Wonder Woman and Leisure Superheroes and Animal Man. And it all happened to be Karen Berger. So I, when I moved to New York City, um, I gave her a cold call. I think I'd met her once at San Diego Comic-Con, you know, before I moved. But essentially, when I, when I got to New York, I called her up, asked if I could visit, and she said yes. And to this day, she has no idea why she said this, <laughs> but she did, and she, she changed my life. She gave me scripts to work from while I was in college, and for two years, I would practice on those those scripts and do comics um, on the kitchen table of my dorm room while, while also working uh, on my, my college stuff, my, my actual assignments. And I submitted my portfolio multiple times, got rejected, but then was finally hired after my sophomore year of college. And I often say I was hired not because I was good enough, but because it was the time the industry was booming and they were putting pencils in hands of anyone that could hold them. And I learned an enormous amount while I was on the job. What was, your, what was the first published book that you ever had out there? Uh, my, first public, my first published work was War of the Gods, number four. Uh, it was part of a Wonder Woman crossover. It was her 50th anniversary. Um, which is amazing because now it's their 75th anniversary, just to give you an idea of how long ago that was. Uh, I was working over George Perez layouts. George Perez, of course, being my favorite artist and the biggest influence on my career. I was so excited. I was thrilled out of my mind. And uh, I was inked by uh, legendary inker Dick Giordano. My name was misspelled in the book, and it came out a big, you know, black, muddy mess but I was published and I was published in a Wonder Woman book. So my first book was a dream come true. Well, and now what uh, you've obviously uh, since then worked with George Perez. What, what is it like to be actually be able to have worked with him considering how, how much of an influence he was on your art? Um, we've only worked together a couple of times. I've tried actually to avoid working together with him too often. I think our one attempt we were all very disappointed with um, George, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, and I were going to do 
uh, this return of Donna Troy book, and we all had this grand vision for it. It became something other than what we wanted. It actually became kind of a nightmare for all of us, just for editorial reasons, which is disappointing. Um, but I, I've tried to avoid working with George just because it's that weird thing when you work with a legend, right? Like, you want to keep them legendary. And far too often, I think, in this business and others, you meet people and they can really disappoint. And George is never disappointed. George continues to be awesome to me and to fans, and his art uh, of a certain time period continues to just boggle my mind. And I, I feel very, very fortunate to, to know that if I ever need to, I can call him and uh, ask him for help. I think one of the best, best phone calls I ever got in comics, uh, George was working on the JLA Avengers crossover. And he called me because he just received reference on the new Paradise Island that I had invented for Wonder Woman. And he thought it was the perfect um, conclusion to the story that he set up in his own Wonder Woman years before. That it was, it was exactly how those characters and that world should have evolved. And that just thrilled me no end. Um, that phone call meant everything to me because that book was in many ways an homage to him and his work and you know trying to recapture a time and an essence and the fact that he liked it so much and approved meant everything to me what is it like to hear people compare your art to his in a favor favorable light i mean i please i mean it's i feel like i'm carrying on artistic tradition i have a career and a life because of George Perez's impact on, on my work and my storytelling sensibilities and all of that. And we're actually very similar in many ways, um, which I love and think is really hilarious. We're both highly temperamental and we have ways of doing things and we are not the fastest artists in the world. Uh, but when the work is good, I think it's incredibly thoughtful and unique and it's a kind of storytelling that very few people can do. Uh, and it feels like something. It does not feel innocuous or borrowed. And I, I'm really happy for that. Um, so I always hope that George knows that, that I, it's never been a matter of usurping or taking his place. It's a matter of paying him his respect and carrying on an artistic tradition. I am always a little bummed when people can't tell the difference between our art because if you actually look at it, we draw very differently, our figures are very different, our approaches to a lot of characters are very different, but we tell stories very similarly. Uh, we break them down. And I just never want him to be insulted when people can't tell the difference between our work. And I don't think he is, I don't think he cares. But um, it's the only thing I'm ever, I try to be careful of. How much of a learning experience was it working on Team Titans so early? T-E-A-M or T-E-E-M? Uh, T-E-A-M. Oh, it's funny, you know. Uh, what <laughs> I, that book was a definite learning experience. Um, there's a lot of history on that book. Um, you know, it's my first big writing gig, and it was rough, and what I wanted was very different from what the editors wanted, and we fought continually. And it was definitely a learning experience. And it's funny because it haunts me. That continues to happen to me. And I think 
It happened to me on Wonder Woman. It happened to me on The Return of Don Troy. And I think the lesson is I haven't learned my lesson. These characters <laughs> are not mine. Um, you have to be malleable and you have to adjust. Um, you have to have good relationships with your editors because if you quarrel with them or fight with them, it can cause, you know, sometimes the work can be really good, but often it, it ends up being really bad. Um, so I learned a lot on that book. Um, I also learned that while I have an art style that is, people seem to find really appealing because it's Parisian, I have a, a much quirkier sense of storytelling um, than I think he does. And uh, it's a little, it's a little off kilter. And I think in mainstream comics, that doesn't always translate, at least to the editors, uh, at least to the publishers. I think it does actually to the consumers. But I think sometimes the publishers get a little flummoxed with some of the things I want to do. When you were doing Team Titans and then you had a short run on Robin, what was it like to kind of go from doing a team book to doing a solo book? Uh, I traditionally like teams more than solo books. You'll find Superwoman, I think of Superwoman as a team book because there are two Superwomen, there's a big supporting cast, a lot of characters have come together in issues, you know, four through eight, um, you know, and kind of play off of each other. So I tend to think of that as a, as a, as a team book. Um, Robin was fine. I loved that character. I loved Tim Drake. Um, so he was really fun to draw on. I remember the, the Chuck Dixon scripts were terrific. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, but I'll always take a team book over a so <laughs> Excuse me. A solo player. Hold on. Wow, pardon me. Yeah, I will always take um, a team book over a solo book. I have to ask, you worked on a... a re I, these days, I think it's considered to be maybe a relatively obscure X-Men miniseries, X-Men Liberators. What was oh, it, yes. What was it like working on that book? I mean, it's interesting. You've worked on three very different eras of X-Books. I mean, you worked with Grant Morrison in New X-Men, you worked uh, on Astonishing X-Men with uh, Warren Ellis, and then you also did this uh, miniseries in the late 90s. What has been, what has it had, what, is it, uh, what has it been like illustrating the X-Men in three extremely different time periods? Well, X-Men Liberators was hilarious because I agreed to that miniseries months months before it came out, and then suddenly Marvel put it on the schedule. Meanwhile, I had been scheduled to do JLA Titans, so I had to do breakdowns on one book and then pencils on the other. So my memory of X-Men Liberators was simply that it was, I was cranking that stuff out. Um, <laughs> and then, thinking about it, Grant Morrison's book was very similar. Uh, I loved New X-Men. I was obsessed with that book, and so when I got the opportunity to draw it, I was really thrilled. Um, but particularly the second arc, which I believe was a bi-weekly book, we only had about three weeks an issue, and this is back when I could actually draw kind of quickly, um, or maybe I was just excited enough to do so. And so my memory of that book as well was you just had to crank it out. Um, so X-Men Liberators, every once in a while people bring that up to me, I forget I ever did it because in my head it was... It was not a full commitment, which is terrible to say, but I just remember thinking, I was so excited to do an X-Men book and it couldn't have come at the worst time. You know, and like, I wish, I wish it, 
I think, you know, Marvel heard I was going to do it, and they put it on the schedule, and suddenly it had to be done. Um, I'm, I always feel really grateful that I've been able to work on the X-Men, and particularly the new X-Men, because that was such an important one, and a story that had, you know, the death of Jean Grey and the supposed death of Magneto, and Jean Grey's been dead for 10 years, and I killed her, and that's funny. <laughs> you know, like, I... Uh, I hope people understand why that's funny. Um, not because I got to kill a woman, but because Jean Grey is, you know, such a mess. Uh, but but it's it's yeah. Now, um, a lot of people do think of you and connect you to your Wonder Woman run. Was that a character you'd always wanted to take a crack at? Uh, obviously, George Perez had a, a huge and important mark on the character as well. Or was it something that DC came to you with? Uh, no, I had wanted to do Wonder Woman. I had been buying for that character for a long time. It was funny when the book came up, it was in a transition space, and I was considered the fill-in artist and writer. They were going to let me write and draw until Greg Rucka was ready uh, to come on the book and take it over. So I got my dream job, um, but it was not exactly my dream job. Um, Meaning, I, they made it very clear over and over that I would, like once Greg was ready, I would be off that book. And then, of course, you know, dreams can become nightmares. That book it was notorious. At least I I talked about it because I had pitched a twelve issue series. It had her mother, the the mother daughter relationship was the core of that series. And then I was told that they were killing the mother halfway through, and so. It meant truncating and replotting and doing a lot of things that I had not intended um, on that book to accommodate these Superman crossovers. And then, of course, 9-11 happened. So, God, 15 years ago now. Um, I always think of it as a little bit less time. And uh, some other stuff happened. And then we had, we had Phil and ours. It was a very strange time rhythmically. And you can sort of tell in the plots that were very stop, start, stop, start. Um, so it was an odd experience. I'm really happy that I had it. Uh, and I'm really grateful that I, people still associate me with Wonder Woman in some way, um, even all these years later. If, if the chance was to be offered again, it would be with some caveats. Um, even with Superman, I can't, a Superwoman, I can feel a little bit of that sort of editorial stuff that happened on Titans and, and, uh, Wonder Woman, and I'm better about managing it now, but it's still, it's like, oh yeah, that's right, this happens on books like this. And it happens on books that I work on because they're, you know, they're all super unrelated in one way or another. Mm -hmm. So, uh, again, very happy, I think, for the opportunity, and I'm, I will always have Wonder Woman under my belt. Uh, it was not a perfect run, but there's a lot of spirit to it, and it meant a lot to some, some people really like it. So Jeff Johns apparently likes it, um, and that, you know, at least got something out of it, and I think that that in and of itself says a lot. Was there any particular story, that you, either a done-in-one or an arc of Wonder Woman that you felt particularly proud of or really happy you got to tell? Um, the, the Lois Lane team-up that Jeff Kelly and I wrote, people really love that story. And I love it because it's probably the most pure of the issues that I got to do. It was just me and Joe writing. 
We didn't have to deal with a crossover. We didn't have to deal with any sort of pace issues based on editorial caveats. Uh, it was just us. And I felt like, yes, that's what we do when we're allowed to do it. And, and it helped define that character for many years, and people still call it one of the top ten, you know, one on one stories of all time. So I really love it. I also happen to like the uh, Our Worlds of War crossovers, The Death of Her Mother, um, which I had to fight for editorially. The editors at DC were not originally going to let me tell that story. Uh, it was going to happen in another book. Um, and I fought and I fought for it. And with the help of the Superman writers, they finally conceded to let me tell that story in the pages of Wonder Woman. You know, it's so funny. I kept saying, you want to kill her mother, but you want to do it in action comics. That would be like killing Green Lantern's parents in the flat. I, I mean, or in Wonder Woman. It would just be so strange. Like, and so... Uh, I look on that issue and considering all the, 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 the organization that we went through and all the stuff with the crossover, I think it's still actually a very strong issue. It's very emotional. It's interesting you mentioned that they wanted it to happen, like a huge event for Wonder Woman to happen in another <laughs> book because it really, in reality, that's kind of what happened to the Green Lantern's entire city being destroyed back during Reign of the Superman. Which is a weird way to look at it, because that's a huge seminal moment for Green Lantern, and it takes place in a completely different book. Uh, that's, there was a feeling, and I think it still exists, that Superman is more important than anything. And so, um, what ha- like, if, it, if it has impact in the Superman universe, you know, in any way it has to happen in a Superman book. And, you know, it doesn't matter who follows. Like, Superman is their big brand. And so I think that was certainly true, um back then hmm. what was it like working on Infinite Crisis with Jeff Johns and actually as a slight predecessor to that question did you know when you illustrated part of the countdown Infinite Crisis issue that you would end up being the main series artist do I remember that I don't know <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question because I don't remember the chronology uh, what I remember about Infinite Crisis is almost like what I remember about X-Men um, in that we were generating material so quickly. That's what I really remember about Infinite Crisis. Um, we all started very, very late, and I knew by issue two that just with the production schedule, we were never, ever going to finish without fill-ins. And so by issue two, we were already giving up issues to, to different artists. Um, so, you know, by, by theme. So the space stuff would go to Ivan Reese and this would go to George Perez or George, Jerry Orbway and I would handle the other stuff. Um, so that's my memory of Infinite Crisis is generating it very, very quickly. Uh, yeah. Did it feel kind of... Is, is that super, like, depressing? No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I, like, I, don't, I don't have, I don't, you know... Uh, I don't have a stronger memory of it. Um, it's just because we, ha- we, I, we were just making comics and just trying to get this crossover done. And, um, you know, and I got to draw all sorts of characters I never got, to dr- never got to draw, and that was actually quite fun. Did it feel surreal to be working on a sequel to something that was, you know, one of your big comics growing up? Sure. Oh, for sure. I mean, I don't, like, even now I'm like, oh, that's right, that was the sequel. Like, that's, that's hilarious. Like when I think about what it is, um, I, it, you know, makes me giddy because I'm now part of that crisis legacy. Um, and 
you know, it was it was the start of a new era. I feel like, or, or really like the, if not the start, certainly the push pen, like like in the board of a new era of comics, and that's actually very exciting to be a part of. Uh, as someone reminded me, and I forget this, like Infinite Crisis at the time was one of the top selling comics of the decade, Infinite Crisis number one. And so it's meant that I've actually worked on three of the top selling comics of the past 11 years, um, or 10 years, I think. So Infinite Crisis number one, The Amazing Spider-Man with the Obama cover, and then DC Reaper um, have all sold like hotcakes. And two of the projects were with Jeff. So um, apparently we're good together. Um, well, I have to ask about Spider-Man. Uh, how did you become part of the Brand New Day stable of artists? Was it Stephen Wacker saying, come over, play over here? Well, it was... I, I actually... Well, Spider-Man, um, I just left D.C. I was actually suffering some terrible burnout uh, after Infinite Crisis. And then Steve had gone to, to, to Marvel and said, why don't you come do Spider-Man? And so we thought, oh, my God, so... He and I concocted this amazing 12-part series. It was going to be a crisis for Spider-Man. And um, I was asked to pitch it. Wait, how did this work? I think I pitched it. We were all on board. And then Brand New Day happened. And then so it kind of annihilated my pitch. And then suddenly I was on the weekly books, which I didn't quite understand because I didn't go over to Marvel to be on a weekly book. I was there to, um, I was there to draw this thing uh, called Sinister Six Six Six. That's what Lacker called it. So they sort of you know put me on these various arcs, and I just didn't quite get what I was doing or why I was doing it. And then during a Spider-Man summit, I suggested that we redesign the big villains. And so I brought in a bunch of ideas for Dr. Octopus and Electro, and um, I think they kind of went with a version of Dr. Octopus, and I invented the Craven family, and uh, like his wife and the, the daughter. And I suddenly felt like I at least was getting to play with the, the toys a little bit. But by the time that happened, I think I was just, I, I was out of it, and I, I didn't, I didn't understand what I was doing. I didn't understand what was happening, and that my story had gotten sort of torn apart, sort of and rebuilt into other stories. And I think I just kind of backed out of it. Uh, and it's one of my great sadnesses because Steve Wacker is probably one of the best editors comics has ever had, and he's one of my best editors. And he really, really knew how to manage me, and he knew what made me tick. And um, I just was not there for him, and I was not there for that book. But I, you know, I had. People also seem to remember quite fondly, and I got that Obama cover, and that's actually pretty, you know, again, incredibly grateful for that opportunity, something I never thought would happen. Well, that brings up a question. So you did illustrate the Obama cover. How many drafts did you do with that cover, like different layouts, before you kind of settled on that one? There are three, there were three versions. That was the third. I don't know what happened to the other two. Um, I remember I brought them to the ABC interview when, when they came to Marvel to talk about that material. I had the two other ones that existed. I'm not sure where they are now, but there are three. And then when there was a, I don't know, fifth printing, they asked me to, to add an element to it, which is where the, um, uh, I think it's the, the Abraham Lincoln statue from the Lincoln Memorial. It's in the background of one of those covers. 
interestingly, a friend of mine just showed me, sent me a picture from a convention uh, where they had a version of that cover for sale, and it was the art dealer was claiming that it was the original, and he was selling it for five thousand dollars. Wow. I know that those boards were done uh, on separate pieces of paper. The artwork is not combined, and so whoever was selling that was selling a forgery. Just for you, just so you know. Wow. When you when you guys were working on the uh, the Obama issue, did everyone kind of figure it would sell as well as it did? I honestly, this sounds like such BS, but I just did it because it was around Christmas and I wanted the extra money for Christmas, you know, because the cover rates were good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think anyone had a clue. I don't, even my art dealer was like, yeah, you know, it'll be kind of a thing, but not really. Uh, and then it suddenly blew up and who knew? Like, there, you know, um, uh, yeah, suddenly the um, folks were buying houses from the royalties. Wow. Now, I, I do have some uh, listener-submitted questions. I told them that uh, we were going to be having you on the show, so I have a few questions if you would uh, be so kind as sure. to indulge us for just a moment. Uh, so first question uh, was, uh, who's your favorite inker you've ever worked with? My favorite inker? Mm-hmm. Is, uh, is Andy Lanning. Um, and the reason was, I think inking is an incredibly challenging, difficult job, especially with templars who get very persnickety about about their line work and what's to be emphasized and what, you know, what, I want the eyes like this and I want the capes like this. Andy knew instantly how to ink my work. Um, he saved me on so many different jobs. He was easily the most professional person I've ever worked with. Um, he was always there for me, even when I wasn't there for him. I think we made great art together. Um, and he saw a, a really good chum of mine. Um, I'm very, very grateful for Andy Lanning and sort of his contributions uh, to my to my work. We worked together, I want to say, for about 12 years mm-hmm. on, all, on all the big stuff. So Infinite Crisis and Spider-Man and Wonder Woman and JLA Titans and Planetary Authority and uh, golly, until about a couple of years ago, Andy was the guy. He inked me on almost everything I'd ever worked on. And who's inking you now? Um, the guy that's inking me now is a young man named Matt Centarelli. Uh, and Matt is one of those stories I like to tell everyone. Matt had been coming up to me uh, about three years ago at New York Comic Con showing me inking samples. And when I decided to go back to DC Comics, Andy Landing had left inking. I needed an inker. Um, no one was available, and so I said, I called up Matt, and I said, hey, do you want a job? And he kind of flipped out, and he said yes. And so um, I took him on, and I threw him in the deep end, and we worked on Rebirth together, and then we worked on Superwoman uh, together. And it's a very exciting for me because he's gone from very quickly, like, you know, I, I had to work with him a lot in the, the first couple of issues, but the last couple of, of books he's done with me, like, I feel like, oh my God, there it is. He's an anchor. And it's sort of proof like me, like when I got started, I probably wasn't totally ready to be a penciler, but just a couple jobs in, I learned so much. And I feel like Matt is the same. He's learned so much and become so smart, so professional in such a short amount of time. And he was just a guy that needed the work. And what I love is that he was brave enough to show me stuff year after year. And it actually worked out. So you just never know. Wow. That's a great story. Yeah. 
Um, same listener had the question of, uh, are we ever going to see more, uh, more other world? Um, I have been trying, I've been working on developing that, sh- uh, project as a TV show for a long time, uh, a couple of years now. I, for various contract reasons, it's not going to go back to DC. And so I had brought it to a production company. I was, I did some work with and asked, uh, if they'd be interested in turning into a TV show. So we had been working on it for a couple of years, developing it, and I think we came up with a take that I really, really like. So now it's just a matter of, of getting it produced. I'm told that that will be difficult because it's expensive, um, but there are people interested in it. So my hope is that we will finish it as a, uh, as a TV show. Wow. Now, the next question is a bit more involved, so if you'll uh, indulge me for a moment, it will take a little bit more to, to, to read it. <laughs> Um, the uh, listener wrote, reading your Wonder Woman run, it's clear you understood that the character was created with the purpose to show the strength and the redeeming capacities of love. Reading what DC Editorial tried to do with the character, Amazon Attacks, The New 52, etc., it is clear, clear that they wanted to focus on the warrior side of her personality. Did you discuss this with DC editors and creators? Was it something that generated problems with DC regarding the title's direction when you were writing it? The only problems I ever had with DC were not about tone and material or take. It was about pace. It was about plotting the book, uh, making it coincide with unexpected crossovers, world events, and the fact that over and over, they would ask me to wrap up my story. This happened three times at least. Wrap up the story so that I could turn the book over to Greg, and then Greg wasn't ready for the book. I've since talked to Greg about this. He, he knew nothing about this. It was just a weird way of handling me editorially. But at least one to three times in, in my run, I stopped because I thought that would be the last issue. And then I'm like, nope, you've got five more. Nope, you've got two more. So, so again, tone material, approach to material, thoughts of the character were, were far less an issue than just, uh, than, than pace of the, the material in the sense that I, I could at any moment be done with an issue. Uh, I'm done with the series. And then it would just start up again, uh, which is why that, the plotting is so uneven. So no, DC, I, to their credit, they're generally pretty supportive of my ideas. I find where we get, where the problems arise, uh, yeah, it's generally with pace and how quickly a story is told, or how many panels the story is told in, et cetera. But they, they, they've always been very, very good to me, especially when it comes to takes on characters. Okay. Uh, and the next listener just uh, wanted you to know that they uh, really like your sketches for your kind of supposed uh, New Teen Titans X-Men crossover that you'll put up sometimes. Oh, yeah. And actually, I had a... Yes. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, the listener put up a, a few kind of pictures that you sketches you put up before, and a lot of people were like, "Why wasn't this ever ha- a thing?" Like everyone kind of freaked out and loved it. Uh, everyone did freak out and love it. I think it was never a thing because I can't imagine those companies ever getting together to do a thing like that yeah. ever again. Um, I was just doing it because I was a big fan of you know I was, just, I was being a nerd and I just <laughs> wanted to draw that stuff and. Um, it was super fun. I actually still have, I, I broke down five pages for it. Uh, I should probably finish them one day, maybe when I'm done with Superwoman. But um, yeah, it was just fun. I'm sad that they never did it, but I also never expected them to do more with it. No. 
Now, I, uh, another colleague of mine in the podcasting community from the Amazing Spider Talk podcast, uh, Mark Giannacchio, had a few questions. Uh, we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but uh, how much lead time did you get to do in, uh, the art on an arc of Brand New Day? They were great about lead time. Um, again, I was not because I was not in the right headspace to do that book. Um, I had come over to do one kind of Spider-Man event, and I ended up doing a completely different one. Um, so they would give us a lot of lead time. Um, they were incredibly organized. And Wacker and Tom Brennan had that thing running like a well-oiled machine. Um, if anything, I probably, yeah, like I said, I, I sort of regret my approach to, to, to that work. I just wasn't in the right headspace to do a lot of it. But they gave me plenty of lead time. It's interesting that you say that, though, because like I'm just flipping through some of your art on those issues, and you wouldn't know that you weren't in the right headspace at all. <laughs> like it's, oh, it's good. like it's amazing looking work, and it really stands out. I mean, they had a, obviously a lot of really good creators on the book doing the rotating creative teams, but yours just looked there's something about it that really jumped off the page, and I always really enjoyed it. So it's almost we, it's almost weird to hear you talk about it as. It's something that you kind of felt almost disconnected from when it looks so vibrant and some of like some of your best work. That makes me very happy because uh, people spend a lot of them. I, I tell these stories and I think, well, that's, I'm not sure people want to know that. I don't think they want to bring that information to their books. Um, people spend a lot of money on this stuff. And so it's my job to give them, you know, the best I can. And one of the reasons I left Spider-Man was that was just never going to happen. Traditionally, and I, you know, I worry about this. I'm definitely more of a sprinter than a long-term runner. Like, I'm really good to begin, and then I start to slow down. Or conversely, I'm a really slow starter, and then I really start to speed up. Um, but schedule is always a bit of a trick. Unfortunately, with Spider-Man, it, was, it wasn't just a matter of schedule. It was just, again, feeling like a little disconnected from, from the material. But, but they were incredibly good to me. Marvel was amazing to me during that period and very responsive to my ideas. And, you know, they let me get that Craven wife and the kid. And, you know, I got to add to this, this Spider-Man mythology, which is so super cool. And Wacker was wonderful to me. He, he would, I mean, he took care of me in a, just a really remarkable way. Um, so I'm, I, all I know is if you paid for comics and you were entertained, then that's all that matters. Um, and if I can't do that, then, if I can't make something I think is entertaining uh, for too long, then I like to just get out of the way. Uh, another question that came from Mark was, and you've, you've, you've alluded to it, but uh, how much input did the artists have on these quote-unquote writer's room during the Brand New Day era? The artists? I felt like I was the only artist that had any. Uh, I, I, I mean, they were actually very receptive to me, which surprised me. Um, I had to learn how to negotiate those rooms because there's a lot of creators with a lot of opinions. But um, they were actually, I thought they were really great. But in terms of, I want to say it was almost all writers and me. I'm trying to remember if there were other artists there. One thing that I think the companies are getting better at is including artists in these meetings because we, of course, have to draw this stuff. And some of our ideas are terrible, but sometimes they're actually quite good. And so I think they're learning to have artistic voices present uh, um, during these events. 
Now, when you drew the first appearance of the character Freak, um, the question is, did you get to drive the direction of the character at all, at least visually, or was he a fully formed concept with explicit instructions when you got the script from Bob Gale? I don't remember. My sense is that I, there were descriptions of what he looked like, and I designed him based on those descriptions. Okay. Now, and you mentioned that your, your I guess your, your second major arc was the one with Anna Craven. So that that was more of your kind of adding something to the mythos. Why did you want to add a, a Craven character? What was it about that that really presented something new and exciting for you? Um, so, two or three things. One of the things that astounds me with most superheroes, but particularly a major character like Spider-Man, is how few female villains he has. Um, and ones that aren't, you know, super slinky, want to have sex with him villains. I just feel like there are very, very few of them. And so I wanted to create a formidable female villain to add to his roster. Then I started looking about who was available and how to connect them to pre-existing characters because that's always a little bit easier. And I realized Craven had all these sons, but no mother was ever named. I think he had three kids. Um, I'm like, well, who's their mother? And then I realized there was none. So I thought, perfect. And so I created the mother and the daughter. And I think we talked a lot about the daughter being this sort of young hunter, a huntress. Because um, we love the idea that there was this killer 13-year-old, the sociopathic 13-year-old, maybe in the mold of Tara, going after Spider-Man. But I am admittedly was influenced by, do you remember the, the movie or the book, Ricky Ticky Tabby? Yes. So Nagaina in my head was always Mrs. Craven. She was always the more dangerous of the two. Um, and I just wanted to create a character that would, was infinitely more sinister than one of the members of the Sinister Six, like who, who was a thousand times more dangerous. I don't remember what they ended up doing with her. They like the story that I built around her I believe Marvel bought, and then I think they took the pieces and retold the story, you know, in different issues. I think that's how that worked. But uh, that's where that came from, wanting to give Spider-Man, like, a, a villain, a female villain of some substance, um, connecting it to a pre-existing character, filling in a little interesting history hole uh, in Spider-Man's villains, and um, I wanted to design a character like her. I just thought she was kind of cool visually. Well, actually, it's interesting you speak of the visuals. One thing I really liked about her and the way you drew her is that she actually looked like a 13-year-old girl. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, um, and I think a lot of artists, you know, accidentally or not, they end up kind of not necessarily over-sexualizing, but definitely making the... They don't, don't always know how to do, you know, younger women. And I just thought it was a, it looked like this is a 13-year-old girl and there was no question of her being too old or, you know, too sexed up. That's just, she looked like a girl. And that kind of came across very clearly. And I don't know if a lot of artists can necessarily do that effectively. Oh, I'm glad, well, then I'm glad it, it worked. Um, that's a lovely compliment. I'm very, very conscious, particularly when I draw children, particularly when I draw young women, of things like height and and body and scale and all of that and so if that if that played out if that was if that was obvious and she read as a 13 year old girl and i'm really i'm thrilled 
because um, I, I work on that stuff a lot. As a quick aside, the funny thing is, just from a color bit, I wanted to be very European. This might be completely offensive to some Europeans, but I wanted her to wear heavy makeup, kind of like Eastern Europeans. And just the, just telling colorists how to do that was hilarious. <laughs> like, no, no, green, green eyeshadow. It's okay. Just go nuts with the green eyeshadow. You know, a little bit under the eyes. It's okay. It's okay. Um, one thing I find really funny with colorists, and I think a lot of it has to do with impact from editors uh, and other artists, is that when you try to bring a bit of fashion into comic costume, it can be very confusing. Um, because the sensibilities are, are, of course, not fashion. They are a superhero costume. Um, and so when you bring something a little foreign like that in, it can be, it can be throw people off. Okay. Well, you know, thanks again so much for speaking with us today. Is there any final teases you'd like to give for Superwoman? Um, the only thing I'm going to say about Superwoman is I really hope people like it, give it a chance. Um, number two is very different from number one. Number three is very different from number two. Um, there are a lot of characters. I will say that most of the story isn't over yet. I know that sounds really cheesy, but it's not. Um, and I just hope people enjoy it. What I, what I want to do is create a, a, a comic book character and a universe and a cast that people can find themselves in and find reasons to root for and get emotional about. Uh, I just had Lana Lane do something that I'm actually quite concerned it will piss people off. But my hope is that it comes off as like a very human reaction to something and that people will connect with it. Um, but yeah, just know that each issue we try to put a little surprise and it changes totally. Um, and, but issues four through seven are so sort of bonkers. I hope the journey is worth it for everyone. And how long do you, do you hope to, to be on the book and, and, de- and developing it and pushing it forward? Um, as long as I survive the experience. I, I, <laughs> I haven't done a monthly in a long time and I forgot what a huge effort is. Like, Greg Capullo is my hero for doing all that Batman monthly. Like, I don't know how he did I really don't know how he did it. It is a grueling, grueling thing. And I'm not a day laborer. I'm making a very decent living. I don't want to complain. But monthly books are hard. It's a lot of continuous work. And so I'm going to go until they fire me or, you know, I win the lottery. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you on the show today. Uh, I hope I was coherent. Have a great evening. You too.